in the field of human conflict, but so much owed by so many to so few. Welcome to UF Radio uh, on Student Radio 98.9. My name is Oskar Hemborg and um, today we will discuss an article written by Anton Golovko. Hello Anton. Hello Oskar. Nice to be the, here. I'm very glad that you're here. Are you alright? I'm good, thanks. Spectacular. Um, yes, so the title of your article is The Many Failures of European Foreign Policy. Um, could you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the article? Yes, so as you said, I'm Anton. I'm uh, from Sweden. Um, and this article, as you say, very nice introduction, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um is coming out in the next issue of Utrik, which should be out on the second week of December, I think, alongside many other fine articles. So I'd recommend you check that out. The reason why I wrote this specific article is partly because um, the news cycle that has emerged since February of last year has kind of showcased the uh, developing, uh, well, the evolution of the world order as it is. And obviously, in February, Ukraine was invaded by Putin's Russia, which was a significant event. And we've also seen since then a kind of gradual rising tension that includes China um, threatening Taiwan, for example. It includes some other conflicts that we can get into. And also because I've been inspired by some books I've been reading lately, which I can recommend to you if you'd like. Please uh, do. Uh, yeah. One of those is The Hong Kong Diaries, which is a subject we'll discuss, Hong Kong as it relates to China, which is by Chris Patton, the last British governor of Hong Kong. A very good book because it describes the kind of years leading up to the uh, handover of uh, Hong Kong to China in 97. So, and it describes the kind of um, failure that I am describing in my article that we will, as I say, get into. And it's kind of the one of the showpieces of how weak our foreign policy has been and how it has failed in its goals. Yes, and uh, you also previously said to me that you are have also written another article for Utrik. Could you tell us a bit about that and is it somewhat connected to this article? Yes, so it's a, it's in a way a companion piece to it. It's focusing on Turkey and its relationship to the EU specifically 
and kind of about Turkey's role because of this next issue of Utrik is about globalization. So basically both these articles are connected to that uh, topic. Um, so it's focusing on Turkey. I'm hoping it comes out in the uh, next issue, as I said. And it is also a kind of showpiece of this foreign policy. Yes. How interesting. Uh, later on we will delve into bit about the background to your article and background of history but now we will listen to some music yes so that was 10 by fred again and juicy so we previously uh, just touched upon the subject but now we will dwell into it further so please anton can you describe how the world was after the fall of the soviet union and when the berlin wall fell in 1989 yeah so as you say, um, my article begins in eighty nine, in nineteen eighty nine, as the uh, Berlin Wall is falling, as the Soviet Empire is collapsing, as Eastern Europe is being essentially liberated by its people from the uh, totalitarian uh, regimes that were occupying them, and this kind of very revolutionary moment leads to um, a general sense of optimism in both the population of Europe and its politicians. And what this in turn leads to is this kind of generation of politicians that are becoming uh, coming into office at a time of, uh, of this optimism. And they're molded by it a great extent in how they view Europe, in how they view the development of the world, in how they view um, the emergence of liberal democracies and so on. And the kind of foreign policy that they in turn mold, that they create as a result of this feeling of optimism, is one which I think both in hindsight but also at the time could justifiably be um, described as naive. And the kind of stances that they take towards emerging, developing countries around the world, such as China, for example, and the relationship which China has with its neighbors, like Taiwan and Hong Kong and so forth, as well as with Eastern European countries, such as Russia and its neighbors, Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia, and so on, is basically not quite fit for purpose and the result of which has been a kind of mishandling of foreign policy basically since 1889 that has resulted in the world which we live in today and which I would argue is much more dangerous as a result of that kind of naive foreign policy. So would you say that it was an easier time perhaps to be active in or in foreign policy like because it was so much optimism, so it was easier for uh, individuals to like, say, this is the new era, and it's the end of history, and so on, and now everybody will be um, democracies like, like us in the West. Absolutely. I, I mean, that is absolutely the case. The kind of um, great sense of optimism that sweeps across the Western world was so overwhelming that it as you say, created books such as The End of History by Francis Fukuyama, who I do 
bring up in the article. Mm-hmm. And even the kind of most skeptic, cynical people are also overtaken by it. So it's undeniable. Yes, so it was an other time and perhaps now we have seen a shift in that. Um, so after the next song, we will talk about Russia, which you mention a lot in your article and which is yes. very relevant in the world today and especially for us here in Sweden since since it's so uh, it's since it's so close to us but now our music yes that was ensamheten här med Arvid Nero so as we said before the break um, Russia is when after the fall of the Soviet Union we here in Europe tried to really build a new and strong and peaceful relationship with the democratic Russia. Um, how, what was the like outcomes of that? And would you say that they were in any way successful? Yeah, so... Yeah, so... Uh, uh, Russia is a good example, and it's why I spent quite a lot of time on it in the article, is because uh, that it is kind of the showcase example of foreign policy going wrong. And so, as you say, we tried to, or the European leaders of the 90s, tried to build a kind of deep connection to it as it emerges. And I want to spend some time on it because I think even then, kind of, Russia wasn't quite as democratic as we thought. And that kind of is the assumption behind so many of our failures dealing with it. So giving some backgrounds, as it emerges from 91 and basically the fall of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin, this politician called Boris Yeltsin, takes charge. He becomes president. He is elected in the first democratic election in Russia, which is obviously a very positive thing. But then as we get into his uh, presidency the kind of failures and the uh, incompetency starts to starts to uh, really add up so what we see is um, that corruption is increasing greatly especially when it comes to his privatization program of the before then state run economy as well as the increasing authoritarianism which basically threatens this image of uh, liberal so-called Russia which is emerging and the problem here is that even as it increases even as uh, Yeltsin is disputing, fighting basically with his parliament even as he is openly attacking them Europe and the West generally sticks by him and they aid his re-election campaign basically distorting the Russian democratic landscape in his favour so consolidating his power for him as well as giving IMF bailouts to say International Monetary Fund, you know, stabilizing the Russian economy. And what we get from that, which is the point I want to get to, is the handover of power to Putin, who is Yeltsin's hand-picked chosen successor, which I don't think many people know about. And would you, because you mentioned Yeltsin several times and also that he was like the predecessor to Putin, would you say that he, as an individual, is an important factor in why the Russia turned out like it did? 
I think it, he is very important. And the reason I spent quite a lot of time on the article is because he is so forgotten. Yeah, it's a forgotten leader because now it's a lot of focus on Putin, but perhaps not as much as Yeltsin. But he was really instrumental in the beginning when um, when Russia was the new liberated country. Um, yes, and after the next song, we will listen, uh, or we will discuss if whether democracy democracy is something that can be exported. And we will also discuss trade and interdependence on each other. Um, But now some music. We heard uh, Malariaviken by Sacke and Annika Norlin. Democracy as something you can trade. Um, You think, uh, what are your thoughts on that? That democracy is something that everybody can take up, uh, take part of and something that everyone wants to take a part of yeah so this is basically my main allegation against the european countries is that they basically think of democracy as something well as a good you can export that something um, which other countries will just buy if you if you send out enough of it if you if you offer enough of it which hasn't really been the case and I don't think that's how I don't think the uh, relationship between trade and democracy is as powerful as as we have thought for the last 30 years and and as an example of that continuing and making more concrete the Russia example that which we were focusing on before the break the developing relationship between Russia and the European states has basically gone this way of continuing to think that more trade, more interdependence, which is a powerful word and an important word, um, will guarantee that Russia moves in a democratic direction. And that has failed. And it has really been a failure since the 90s. And we have continued doing so. So the very first, I mean, there's a lot of, as we say, Yeltsin was corrupt, whereas I say, Yeltsin was corrupt and he was incompetent and he was uh, authoritarian. But when Putin takes power in 99, his first act is to level the city of Grozny, which was essentially rebelling against the Russian Federation, destroying the city completely in 1999. And that sparks very little reaction from the other European countries. And then we go on in 08, Georgia is invaded by the Russian Federation. And then Crimea in 2014. And basically... We continue tying the Russian economy to ours. Yes, that was Fried Rice by Royal Otis. We did previously we talked about trade and democracy, and I, it was something that you wanted to add to the last segment. Yeah, so just to quickly add on to Russia, basically as our economic relationship with between Russia and the EU is kind of. Uh, significant through the Nord Stream project, which we have basically all heard about. But the point I want to make about it is that it is a project which ties the mostly German but European economy to the Russian one through this oil and gas pipe pipeline throughout the Baltic Sea. And that has been continually built throughout these escalating Russian aggressions, throughout Crimea annexation and Georgia invasion and so on. Yeah. And would you, so 
you're I think one can understand that you're a bit critical if weather trade is the best way to build long lasting peace. But aren't there um, examples of this, for example, in, um, I mean, the whole EU project um, that some might argue that trade is the cornerstone of peace building. Um, And if we want to, um, for example, um, France and Germany uh, that have for a long time had a very um, conflict-filled relationship, now are best of friends within this union. Don't you think that that would argue for that trade is actually a very good step? Yeah, so you bring up a good point, which is the EU, which is, well, started at least as a trade block. And it has indeed successfully built ties between, as you say, France and Germany. Also, prominently in our case, as the Soviet Union falls, Eastern Europe kind of moves into the EU bloc. So yes, it does It does work. But the reason that model works, in my opinion, what distinguishes it from Europe's other relations is that it is condition, uh, based on conditions, right? To get into the EU, to get into the common market, you have to fulfill certain human rights conditions and uh, structure your economy in a certain way and have democracy which adheres to the rules. And... Uh, Basically, the reason why that has not worked outside of Europe is because those conditions have not been applied. It has not been applied in the case of China. Uh, aid given to China and investments in China have never been based on any kind of condition of human rights or requirements based on democracy or any such. So all these agreements reached with outside with the powers outside of Europe have not materialized in the same way as Eastern Europe because of that, because they are conditionless. Yes, but you don't think it has anything to do with the proximity that that that, un, that the European countries understood, okay, now we have a set of new countries here that we need to try to incorporate to this um, family if we want to <coughs> if we want to get um, like a long lasting peace. Yes. Uh, you are partly right. It is geographically based, and I think that's part of the problem because when we've been happy with the Baltic states and with Poland and so on, but we kind of ended at the borders of the Russian sphere, yeah, Ukraine. Exactly. So we didn't until we didn't push then, it far enough. Didn't push it far enough, and then we can see it the other way around now. And that was Sun God by the Bang Bang Bangs. Um, good song. Very good song. So, um, how would you say that um, actions by uh, individual or actors during the 90s when uh, European democracies tried to spread the word democracy, how has that impacted today's international arena? Where can we see the consequences or perhaps um, positive outcomes of this? Yeah, so let's let's talk about the modern day. Let's bring it to today. Um, the the kind of main points of my article or the uh, thread going throughout the article is that the result, the, you know, the culmination of all these policies has been to essentially empower the uh, anti-Western, anti-democratic, illiberal forces in the world, and that. What has emerged from that is a kind of general opposition um, and a unified and powerful opposition to 
the kind of international rules-based order which the United States created in the aftermath, aftermath of World War II. And I think basically as I conclude in my article is that the, uh, the policy regarding Russia has concluded in the Ukrainian war. Like this is the price we have paid for ingratiating ourselves with uh, Russia, with integrating ourselves with Russia, creating an inter- interdependence which has not stopped Russia in any way, not stopped Putin, not deterred him. It has instead fed the Russian war machine. It has empowered them to actually have the resources to invade Ukraine, as well as other countries, as I've mentioned. And China is now a superpower. And what's interesting, as some people have uh, mentioned, some of which I cite, some of which I don't, is that now, you know, before, in 2010, sorry, in 2005, the Chinese and British economy were equal. They were equally large. And at that point, we still had time to do something. And now, in the modern day, the Chinese economy is seven times larger than the British British economy. So the result of which has been that we have lost the power to make changes and empowered people like China, people, states like China. And the result of that has been the formation of the BRICS alliance or bloc, Mm. which is very interesting because it is basically offering an alternative to the rules-based order, to the Western, quote-unquote, Western uh, way of doing things. Yes, and the BRICS is currently expanding even further, now including both Ethiopia and um, other countries. Would you say that, or do you think that we will ever come to a tipping point that when... um, when the BRICS is perhaps the dominating force of the global scene? I'm not sure if it's ever going to be dominating. I think a tendency among totalitarian countries or even fascist countries, which I would say Russia is, is to self-destruct in the end, but to take as many people and as many states and as many neighbors as they can with them. So they might not dominate, but I think the problem with BRICS is that it is a credible alternative and a powerful alternative to the Western rules-based order that can credibly offer countries a way of prosperity which is not Western, which is illiberal. Yes. And after the break, uh, the next song, we will talk about if there will be a shift in the way one does for foreign politics. That was Bara Bara Dej med Melina Borglov. Yes, so we discussed, uh, or I mentioned before the song that will there, now when a lot of things going on in the world, we see a war in the Middle East, we see a war in in Ukraine and, and other places as well. How do you think that European states or Western states overall should try to interfere with in these conflicts? Should they even do that? So I think uh, there has already been a kind of shift happening. And the main result of the, or the main reason for that is the Ukraine war. And I think we have seen a kind of new cohesion and uh, unity among European leaders and NATO leaders that has been kind of lost since the 90s. When the Soviet Union fell, there was this kind of questioning, should NATO remain or not? 
Is there a reason for it? You know, what's its purpose? And that has been reinvigorated. So I think there is already a kind of shift, large enough to be called a paradigm shift, really, in a new kind of cohesion. So there, there are positive signs of change already happening. <clears throat> but what I think should change further is that we should realize basically the same the same lesson we're learning with Russia now. We should learn about other countries. And I think China is the biggest one. And I think the posturing that China is doing recently regarding Taiwan is both a warning as well as a result of our foreign policy. It's it's a warning because it signals that uh, China is confident, that it believes it can expand on its neighbors more than it has already. And it's a reason because it sees Ukraine as a kind of... Uh, uh, a kind of precedent. Yeah. And I also wanted to ask you a question because you mentioned uh, we talked about how st- the Western world has tried to like d- d- um, try to libera- liberate and try to democratize and everything the all in many developing countries. I wonder is that can we say that that is the goal of all countries? Do everyone wants to be like Germany or Spain or d- is that like a norm? Does that is that something? I think that perspective that you're expressing is certainly one that's becoming more prevalent, or has been more prevalent, I should say, both in academia but also in the minds of politicians. That Europe shouldn't act as a neo-colonial kind of influence, and it shouldn't force other countries to become Western. But one, my main, I have two problems with that. One is I think. European leaders are right now not really looking for, not looking to democratize countries as such. They believe that trade is enough, that a natural course for all countries is to become liberal democracies, which is wrong, as we've discussed, um, and that their decision-making is influenced more by trade uh, as a standalone thing. But two, I don't really like that perspective all that much because I think it confuses Western values as Western traditions, which I don't think is the same thing. I think Western values are inherently universal. And I think things like universal human rights can be applied everywhere. And they are not just some bizarre European uh, obsession. Exactly. That perhaps it's something that is in fact universal. Yes, that was Where Does It Go? No, yeah, I don't know of more. So, Anton, our hour is starting to reach its end. Do you have anything that you think that, oh, this I want the listeners to know or something? Oh, yes, in my article, you will also get the chance to read about this. Yeah, so we focused on Russia and China, which is for good reason, obviously. But in my article, I also discuss Iran, its nuclear program, and how Europe has uh, how Europe has approached that issue. Um, which you can all of which all of the topics we have discussed today are all appearing in my article, which I recommend you read. Also, I, as I said in the beginning, I recommend you read some of the books which inspired this article, The Hong Kong Diaries, I will repeat, by Chris Patton, as well as I can mention regarding the Iran issue, um, uh, Surrender is Not an Option by John Bolton, which was also partly what inspired that segment. Yes, thank you for your tips. It's um, 
I don't know, it's a lot of listeners that are very interested in these topics and therefore I think it's good that we all get recommendations. And so please read Anton's article in the next uttryck and I know there's a number of other articles that will be there. And some of them will also be episodes here where we will discuss it similar as we did today. So get your hand on your next copy of the magazine Utryck and also continue listening, listening to UF Radio. Um, the next, uh, next week and the week after that we will have a two-part series about the conflict in Nagano-Karabakh which is um, very interesting. I know some of you attended a lecture about that. And now we will go further into that with that. And we will also have interviews um, both from Armenians as well as the Sveriges Radio's Russia's correspondent. And um, please don't hesitate. Uh, p- contact anyone here, here at Radio UF you, if you have a pitch for an episode. We love your ideas and we very much want to um, promote you what you have uh, thought about, if you have written anything, if it's a topic that you're an expert in or whatever. And I also want to thank you, Anton, for joining me here today. Thank you very much for having me. Was it fun? It was very fun. I'm glad. And take care, everybody. Be safe and be curious. (laughs) 